Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hi, everyone. On today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast, I have a really special guest, Monica Heisey. Did I say that right? I meant to ask you before we hit record. Nailed it. Okay. We have a really special guest, Monica Heisey, and she is here to talk about her book, Really Good Actually, that comes out on January 17th. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I have to admit, I saw your book first and foremost on TikTok and I saw someone had an advanced reader's copy. This was like many, many moons ago. And there was like one snippet and it was like a writer from who, a writer of Schitt's Creek, a heartbreaking story. And I was like, well, that sounds intriguing. And I, (laughs) I looked the book up and then emailed PR and was like, we must, (laughs) Oh my God. That's Please so nice. set this up. Very hip. <laughs> so I'm actually really, um, shocked and happy that I I'm actually getting to speak to you. And I got to read this book on what I kind of thought was a little bit of a whim, um, and like a bold, well, like a bold ask of me to just reach out and be like, let's, <laughs> let's make this happen. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners what really good actually is about? Yeah, um, Really Good Actually is a novel about a woman called Maggie, who is 28 years old. She got married at 26 and is finding herself two years later, very unexpectedly getting a divorce. Um, And the book follows the first year in her life um, as she's navigating being uh, alone for the first time in basically her entire adult life um, and not handling it particularly well. Maggie goes through a lot in this book. I feel like this is a circumstance that maybe happens, but isn't talked about very often. And so I'm wondering what the inspiration was for Maggie and her story. Um, Well, I got divorced at a young age myself as well. Um, I was 29 um, when my marriage ended and the circumstances were quite different to Maggie's, but I found myself kind of desperate at the time to read or watch something about, uh, you know, getting divorced in your twenties. And I couldn't find anything that wasn't extremely dramatic and heavy. Um, And I felt like I was experiencing enough heaviness in my own actual life. And what I really wanted was something that treated this very serious experience with kind of a light hand. Um, And so I, you know, went through the experience myself and kind of waited a little bit of time to process it and draw some conclusions on my own and then started writing. That sounds perfect. And I will say, I saw that Publishers Weekly called this book, Bridget Jones Diary for the smartphone era, (laughs) um, which I thought was a really um, interesting take on Bridget Jones. I feel like that's such a classic of that time. And this is definitely, I think going to be 
a new classic in the Bridget Jones style, um, because you did a really wonderful job at capturing the heartbreak that Maggie goes through. There's a lot to process, but it's also so funny and humorous at times. And I'm wondering how you found that perfect balance between, you know, the real heartbreak and all the change that she's going through, but also that a lot of it happens with humor. I think there's something kind of inherently funny about heartbreak because it really is this, this kind of devastating experience that feels very world ending, but especially as you get older, I mean, to be in your late twenties, you and everyone, you know, has probably experienced heartbreak at least once or twice by then already, but every single time it happens, it feels like, no, this is the worst time. This is the time that's actually going to bring about the apocalypse. Um, So there's kind of like an inherent ironic humor there already because the feelings are real. The devastation you feel is real, but you also know part of you knows from just being alive that it will pass eventually. And I think there's something kind of like darkly funny about the fact that you can totally lose sight of that. Um, So I kind of started there. I think that's so true. And what I really liked about Maggie and the way that she wrote about the characters in this book, that this book feels like one of the most accurate portrayals I've ever read of like a millennial-ish woman. And the way that, well, I don't want to generalize, but the way that, you know, a lot of people process things, there's sort of like the Instagram strategy that Maggie goes through. (laughs) There's like the self-help phase, you know, where she's just going to lean into, you know, yoga and reading and like, um, it felt like a lot of the things that she was doing in this book are things that like I myself could relate to, you know, wanting to better yourself or find hobbies or do things just even, um, if the circumstances of your life are different. And I just really enjoyed how spot on this felt, um, (laughs) for somebody in, I think the similar age group, uh, as Maggie and her friends in this book. Something else that I thought was really interesting is um, all of the relationships and friendship dynamics that Maggie has. She has her divorced friends in the book. She has her group text friends. Um, And then we also have the relationship she has with her parents um, who are divorced, her siblings. I'm interested to know what drew you to um, wanting to explore all of those different dynamic relationships that Maggie has and sort of play very different roles in her time going through this year? Yeah. I mean, I think it was important to me that if I was going to write about uh, someone going through kind of a personal crisis, that the book was also kind of a, an ode to the relationships that sustain people during those crises. I feel like my friends did so much work to take care of me and listen to me. And, you know, I think I felt, I felt so lucky to have them during my own, not just my breakup, but I feel lucky to have them during kind of any personal crisis that I've had. Um, And I think I've read a lot of books about women having a hard time or people having a hard time and maybe fewer that illustrate uh, uh, the wide, the, the breadth of community around someone struggling who are all trying to help in different ways or becoming frustrated that their efforts to help aren't quite getting there. Um, and there was something kind of extra tragic to me about Maggie because she spends so much of the book feeling so lonely 
um, to have her actually surrounded by people. You know, she's got a great group of friends. She makes a new friend even during this difficult year, but still she just feels completely alone. And I think that feels very true to life because a lot of it was not that she didn't have the support, but that it was, it seems like it was hard to figure out how to navigate that new dynamic. You don't just want to talk about the only thing that's happening with you, but (laughs) it's such a huge presence that it's hard to see out of that. And I thought that the way that Maggie kind of goes through that felt very true to life where you're, you're trying to balance, you know, your own things, but also like being a good friend and listening. And sometimes you just don't have the capacity for that. And you know, you don't have the capacity to be a good friend. Yeah. I'm trying, well, I'm trying not to spoil anything particularly (laughs) about the book, but it's, we don't want to get too much into the weeds there, but without giving too much away, did you have a favorite character among this sort of wider cast of characters around Maggie? I'm particularly fond of, as an example, Amy. I really enjoyed their dynamic and a lot of the things that she brought to the story. Yeah, I have a real soft spot for Amy as well. I think I've met so many women like Amy. um, And I think I don't have a ton of Amy's in my close friendship group. And having her as a character kind of was a way of exploring why I don't, or maybe kind of having a word with myself about why I don't. I think it can be easy to write off people like Amy. And actually they're often like, just like would go the extra, would die for you, basically, are really good friends, really good. And Maggie needs a model of really good friendship. Um, So she has this person who she might have written off in her life as a bit flighty or a bit silly, who actually knows a lot more than she does and has a lot to teach her, in addition to just being like a fun hang, which she also is. That's so true. And I love that. I really enjoyed all the scenes uh, with Amy, particularly one without getting too spoilery, that takes place at a spin class. (laughs) (laughs) So in the book, I often felt like I was reading like my own diary at times um, for certain (laughs) things. And, but one of the things I really enjoyed that readers will see when they look at the book is that there are Google searches included throughout the story. And I'm wondering what the inspiration was uh, for those and for their inclusion in the book. Um, all the little, so there are shorter pieces kind of throughout the book. And those were all thing, kind of the first parts of the book that I wrote. I was a little bit intimidated sitting down to write something as, um, lengthy and large as a novel. And I thought I wanted to find ways to get to know in particular, the main character, because it's told from Maggie's perspective and it's very almost claustrophobically in her head. Um, so I thought I'll really have to know this person, um, you know, before I start writing like 80,000 words from her perspective. And also it was really important to me that she not just be me, that it not just be some kind of like barely different version of my own perspective. So those were kind of character building exercises. I, I find my own Google searches so confronting. All your anxieties are there. All your insecurities are there. And I just kind of thought, well, what did this woman's Google searches look like, or, you know, there's some fantasy sequences as well. What, what occupies her time when she's, you know, on a train daydreaming. Um, 
So basically those short pieces are me trying to get to know Maggie. And then I realized after I'd written them that they might be useful for the reader to do the same thing. I loved them. I thought that that they were extremely telling, you know, just Mm -hmm. getting to know Maggie by having the Google searches and kind of made me realize like, Ooh, what do my searches look like? Because some of this looks exactly like what I would Google, um, (laughs) embarrassing or not. (laughs) Now you said that some of those things, the, there's some short pieces, the fantasy sequences, the Google searches were part of getting to know Maggie, but I'm interested to know what the writing process was like for this debut novel. How long did it take? Um, Did you plan it out or did a lot of it come spontaneously? What was that like? Um, I started with a plan that I kind of amended as I went along. So I'm used to being a TV writer, outlining things kind of before I get going. And I'm a big fan of a good outline. Um, So I had one, a kind of a loose one going into it. um, And I knew I wanted to take place over one year. I thought that was kind of tidy. Um, And I wrote the first maybe 20,000 words pre-pandemic. And then once the pandemic hit, I thought, okay, I could really like buckle down and make this my project and finish it this year. Um, And I did. And I, um, when travel was allowed again, not even travel, I just, once it was allowed to leave your house, I um, like booked an Airbnb for like four or five days on my own to just go be alone um, and kind of look through everything I'd accumulated and put it into the order that I wanted and give it a bit more shape. Um, So it took about a year all in. And what's it been like since? So it took you about a year to write this. I'm back in with 2020 when mm. everything kind of shut down. How what has it been like um since finishing writing and, and getting it to this point where it's going to be in readers' hands soon? It's been really surreal. I think possibly more surreal than usual because everything about it to this point has taken place basically the way we're doing this now on my laptop in my house. You know, I wrote it in my house on my laptop. I had all the meetings with editors on my laptop. I, we sold it on my laptop. Um, and so now to go out, you know, we've had a couple events in London and I've met some people who have read it to have it be a real thing that exists in the world feels really unbelievable. Um, yeah. It's, it's very, it's like when you've been, you know, sitting in a movie theater and you come out into the real world again, and you're just a bit like, (laughs) yeah, it feels like it's been a long time coming and it's going to be a a different and fun experience when it's actually in the hands of readers. I'm like holding it in my (laughs) hand. Like, I don't know why I'm holding it while I speak to you, um, you know, for inspiration in case I need to reference. (laughs) I saw you're doing uh, several events across the UK um, with readers and other people. Are you excited to see people in person and, and do a, a a proper maybe post pandemic book tour? Yeah, I really am. I, I think, I mean, having people read something that you've written, it never stops feeling like quite a big privilege. So, um, and even more so if they enjoyed it. (laughs) So um, re- meeting the few readers that I've met so far has been amazing and just getting to talk to them, you know, like there's just no bigger thrill. I don't think after having written something to meet someone who not only read it, but just like really got what you were trying to do. Um, and maybe even identified with it. So I'm excited to keep doing that. 
I understand why you're doing events in the UK and not uh, the US and Canada yet, but I was a little sad that uh, I can't attend any of the ones in the UK. <laughs> I think maybe, maybe in the new year there'll be, or like the summer, there'll be some mm-hmm. more. I'll keep an eye out, but I was also <laughs> keeping an eye out for any virtual events as well. <laughs> mm. um, speaking of the UK and the US, I saw that there are a two very beautiful, but a little bit different covers for the US edition of this and the UK edition. And I'm curious if you had um, any input on the cover design for both and how they came to be. Yeah, so in the UK, um, Fourth Estate has an amazing cover designer named Joe Thompson, and that was like one of the earliest kind of sketches that I saw um, or designs that I saw for the cover, um, and it was the first one. I saw that one before the US one, um, and I just really liked it. There was something about it that felt like kind of a fun play on those kind of classic, you know, illustrated woman covers. Um, because we don't see all of Maggie and what we can see is not doing well. Um, so it's a little less kind of quirky, cute and a bit more like, oh, this is one of those girls, but she's in big trouble, <laughs> um, which I kind of liked. And then um, for the American cover, um, there is an amazing designer named Mumtaz. Anyway, they have an amazing cover designer named Mumtaz. <laughs> Um, and they worked with an amazing painter named Sari Shriak. Um, and that's an original painting of Maggie. Um, it's actually really huge, which is like um, amazing to see there. She posted some cool like behind the scenes photos of herself painting it. Um, and they're they're just like really exciting to see. And yeah, I like them. I feel like they're kind of in conversation with each other, even though they're stylistically really different. Yeah, I think that that's so true. They look like they're related, but um, yeah, I can see why they appeal to the different markets. Yeah, each way. This is just for me, basically. Um, are you doing any signed editions for the U.S.? Because I did see you're doing signed for Waterstones. Yeah, there's a signed edition for Waterstones, and I, as far as I know, there isn't a signed edition yet for any of the other markets. But um, the American stuff was, is still kind of rolling out. So I'm a little bit more up on what's happening in the UK just because I'm here. Yeah, absolutely. I ask a lot of authors this, uh, these questions because I, as a reader, am really into the different editions. You know, if there's a Waterstone special edition or anything like that. So that was for me question. Um, I personally <laughs> ordered the Waterstones one. Did you? <laughs> I did. Yeah. Oh, I was signing this today. (laughs) That's exciting. For our listeners who might not know uh, the rest of your uh, career background, you are also a television writer for um, shows that they may recognize like Schitt's Creek. I'm wondering what it's like um, writing for television versus writing for your debut novel. Yeah, it's, it was really, it was a really different experience. I mean, writing television is so collaborative. You're usually in a writing, at least in North America, you're in a writing room with, you know, between three and upwards of 10 other writers. Um, And you're all kind of like making each other's ideas better or poking holes in ones that don't quite make sense. And um, it's a really, it's a group process. And this was so solitary. Um, and even after the writing room is over as well, then you get 
the script to set and there is a cast and a crew who are all working to make your your idea better than it was in just your head. So there was definitely a period kind of maybe 20% of the way into the novel where I was sitting at my computer and realized like no one is coming <laughs> to help me with this. This is just going to be me. Um, and that was daunting on some days and very empowering and inspiring on other days. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Do you prefer writing for one medium over the other or are both very rewarding? I feel really, really lucky to be able to bounce between the two of them. I think especially because, you know, writing a book is, is like I said, very solitary and can be really isolating, but you also have a lot of power that you don't necessarily have with TV. There are so many different things to consider when you're writing for TV, like the budget of the show and, um, the, you know, the, the, um, what the actors do and don't want to do or are and aren't good at, or what we can afford to, you know, like, you can't say like, there's an explosion now, if if it's going to be dangerous for the actor or if we can't afford the stunt or whatever. Um, and, uh, and I think it's, um, oh yeah. So it, it can be great because you can kind of do whatever. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't have a preference at all, really. Um, they each have kind of pros and cons and I, yeah, I feel really lucky to be able to toggle between the two. Well, if I do say so myself, I think you have, a uh, many, many books ahead of you. I hope, I um, hope. because I, I would love to read more of them. This was just one of the most relatable stories I've read about, you know, a woman in her late twenties, like early thirties in a really long time. It was really refreshing to see what felt like such an accurate portrayal. I feel like a lot of fiction can be aspirational. Um, mm. and this, I felt like Maggie, you know, and I aren't necessarily that different in certain regards. And so that was just really refreshing to see somebody who you could really relate to certain pieces of, of their normal life, you know, and I did really enjoy, I don't think this is a spoiler to say that there's one section of uh, Maggie's story where she just doesn't look at her bank account (laughs) and just makes purchases and just online shops and just absolutely refuses to check her bank account. And, um, that felt a little bit too (laughs) accurate at times where you're just like, I'm just not going to look at this. We're going to put that over here. And if I don't look at it, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the book is really about someone who 
is just running from sitting alone with their bad feelings, which I think a lot of people can relate to whether or not they've been heartbroken or, you know, nobody likes sitting in their unpleasant feelings, but Maggie, I think dislikes it more than the average person and kind of tries basically everything available to not do it. Um, and then has to hit a pretty, a pretty bad rock bottom, I think, to finally be like, oh, I guess I have to look at myself. Yeah, she really does. It seems like Maggie changes a lot over the course of the year, but also stays the same, if that makes sense. Mm. And I'm wondering if you think that people are capable of like real and lasting change, or if it's just small incremental steps. Yeah. I mean, I think a bit of both. I think those small incremental steps can lead up to really lasting change, but it doesn't happen over the course of a year. You know, I think it might have, it would have been a little bit convenient for Maggie to have solved all of her problems within a year. Um, But equally, I think it would have been unsatisfying for the reader for her to have stayed exactly the way she was. And certainly it had become unsatisfying for Maggie to stay that way, which is, I think, the only way that real change ever happens. You have to get kind of sick of yourself. I think that's so true. And I do appreciate as well with the story that there are small changes that she makes, but it's, that's so true. Like you said, you're not necessarily going to be radically different one year in. Mm. Um, And I think some books do that. You have like a radical change in character shift that doesn't necessarily feel true to life. And this really did. So uh, what I'm saying repeatedly and not very well is that this is definitely one of the most relatable books I've ever read. (laughs) And it was really nice. (laughs) So I have a couple of random questions, if you'll indulge me, that aren't necessarily related to the book, just that our listeners can get to know you a little bit. I'm wondering if you have a favorite or a best story from working on Schitt's Creek. (laughs) A best story. Um, I don't know. I felt that was like my first job in narrative TV. I was like 25, I think in the first writing room. And I just, I felt like every day was my best story because I just couldn't believe my luck. Um, And it was like, we were writing in Los Angeles and um, you could like see the Hollywood sign from the office. Um, So I was just like completely overwhelmed. And um, so like, kind of shitting myself every day to be there. Um, I just felt so, so lucky. I love that. So your job and life, it seems like has taken you all over the place uh, where you're currently based in the UK. Mm. Do you have a favorite place um, in London or a favorite restaurant or just places that you really like to go? Yeah, London, London. I lived in London in my early twenties and I moved back in my early thirties, um, because it's just my very favorite city in the world. Um, I really love, there's a restaurant on Newington green called Jolene. And it is the, like, to me, the perfect place because you can go there in the morning for coffee and like a croissant, and then you can just hang out and read a book until it's time to have the most delicious lunch you've ever had. Um, and you can kind of then go walk around Dalston or Stoke Newington. And if you wanted, come back for an absolutely equally bonkers dinner. Um, they just really know what they're doing. (laughs) 
I love that. What's the best part about living in London? I think my favorite part about living in London is that there is still some, it's like a huge city. It's like a major world city where there's still an interest in a little bit of work-life balance, um, which I haven't really been able to find in any of the North American cities I've lived in. It's kind of been very work, work, work. Um, but here there's still like, you know, pub culture and all the museums are free and there's so many gorgeous parks and so much green life, um, like gorgeous, like public ponds you can swim in in the summer. There's still a little semblance of um, like a life outside of your job and some fun and value outside of your job, which I think is so important. I agree. Speaking of um, cafes and fun things around the city, what is your go-to cafe order? Oh, I'm, I'm a, an oat Americano. I feel like that's every like pretty standard. I moved back. To, I left the UK for the first time in 2014. And then I came back, I started coming back in 2018 and the oat milk takeover in that time was total. I left England and I had never heard of oat milk and I came back and there was nothing else happening. Um, congratulations to oat milk, a triumph. We love it. I definitely don't understand the hold that oat milk has on me, but mm-hmm. it's there. So I agree. It definitely sort of took over. <laughs> <laughs> Are you reading and listening uh, to anything right now that you're really enjoying uh, books, audiobooks, or anything like that? I just read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow um, by Gabrielle Zevin, and I really enjoyed that. It was such an interesting look at uh, creative friendship in particular and collaboration. Um, and then I'm rereading uh, Birds of America by Lori Moore. I just, I'm obsessed with Lori Moore. I, I, I think I read somewhere that there's going to be new Lori Moore coming out. Um, next year. And if, if I'm remembering correctly, that's amazing. And if I'm not, I'm so sorry to anyone listening. Um, but yeah, those are what I'm reading right now. Those both sound lovely. I actually just bought a copy of tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow this weekend. At the oh, bookshop. So I hope you enjoy it. I really, really did. I keep hearing really wonderful things about it. And the cover is really lovely as well. So I saw they had a copy and went, well, I think it's time. <laughs> What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Just in general? Mm-hmm. Or in or about writing, if that uh, is more helpful. <laughs> I think in general, the best piece I've ever received is that almost nothing is personal. And that's been so useful, kind of positive and negative. I feel like so many instances of someone being rude or being careless or whatever. It's so rarely about you. And it's almost always about um, something that they're going through or something else that you don't know about. But then equally, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to hear um, people say such nice things about the book and also kind of try not to take that too personally because people are relating to the work. It's not like, Oh, you're, you're this like, I don't know. I think it would be very easy to kind of get a little bit worked up about yourself. Um, I think people are around the publication of a book really generous and complimentary and that's lovely, but it's also not personal and so much more about their interaction with a now finished work. So it doesn't say much about the work that you're going to produce in the future. And it's important to remember that anything they're saying is really about them and the work and not about like 
some inherent ability that you have and you have to keep working really, really hard. (laughs) I think that's really good advice. And it's very true, especially with books. They're so your interaction with them is so personal that Mm. it really, really can't be taken uh, one way or the other because everyone's going to have such a different reaction but I loved this book. (laughs) Just so, just so, you know, I loved this book. Um, and I hope, and I think that as you continue to meet with readers, um, you'll hear similar things (laughs) as well. Uh, when I say public library, I'm wondering it, what comes to mind? If you have a favorite uh, memory of the library, um, I do. And for our listeners, that's because Overdrive uh, is the company that sponsors the Professional Book Nerds podcast and they're a library company. So we love to ask. Um, So the Toronto Public Library used to have these reading challenges in the summer and it would be like whoever could read the most books. Um, And my sisters and I used to take that. We would go ballistic. We would just go nuts. Um, And I'm a really fast reader, I think, as a result because I was trying to cram in like more books than my sister in the summer um, and took it away. Like I'm sure the library meant it as fun, but it was like a blood sport in our house. Um, but I, I got through a lot of books and like found authors that, and cause then if you're trying to read in high volumes, it makes the most sense. You want to read things you like. That's how you really find authors that you kind of work your way through their entire body of work. Um, I think the biggest hit for me during the reading challenges was the Louise Renison, Georgia Nicholson books, um, which are like, remain very important to me to this day, but to me as a young person were like revelatory. That is actually so interesting. If that was an influence on your, um, you know, on reading, I love those books. They're sort of diary style entries uh, of George, Georgia Nicholson. I love that, that I can kind of see a connection there if you read those <laughs> as, as a youth and shout out to the Toronto public library. They're such a wonderful library system. So good. Um, yeah. Those reading challenges, I think definitely speak to people's competitive nature, whether that's <laughs> the intent or not. <laughs> I'm wondering if you have an author or authors where no matter what they produce, it's like an immediate buy or an immediate read. Oh, totally. I think um, Sheila Hetty for sure is one of those for me. Um, Elif Bachman as well. I think those two, I would really follow them anywhere. And I'm like, I have a book buying problem. So this applies to a lot, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of writers, I think. But um, I think those two in particular uh, Sheila Hetty's narrator and how should a person be says you have to know where the funny is if you know where the funny is you know everything and I think that Elif and Sheila are both writers who really know where the funny is and their work is always so interesting and smart and like philosophical even but it's also really funny um, they really understand something about people um, and what's silly about them and so it makes their reading their work such a pleasure I love that Now I'm curious, where can our listeners find you online if they want to keep up with this book and anything else that you're working on? Yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, my handle for both is at Monica Heisey. So just my name. 
Perfect. And just to wrap up a little bit and circle us back to the book, really good. Actually, I have two final questions for you. The first is how easy or difficult was it to land on the title? The title came pretty quick. Um, I was trying to think of just kind of something that would encapsulate the period of sadness where you're lying to not just yourself, but other people about how you're doing. Um, and, and I went through a couple versions of that, like, yeah, fine or whatever. Um, but I, I went with really good actually in the end, because I like the kind of twist that actually implies, um, so it's like, you know, really good actually is what you say when people are like, how are you doing? And they kind of touch your shoulder. But equally, I think it could apply to the overall experience of something difficult and challenging like heartbreak. You know, it could actually not be that bad. It could even be quite important for you and your development as a person. Um, so I liked that it had both meanings. I like that too, that the emphasis could be different depending on the way that you say that. Yeah. And lastly, I'm wondering if there's anything that you would like for readers to take away from this book. Um, I think the main thing I want for as a reading experience for readers is for them to laugh first and foremost. I really did try very hard to make it funny. Um, (laughs) And I think, you know, I'm hesitant to like ascribe a moral to the book particularly, but equally, I didn't just leave Maggie kind of in the dirt. So I think there is a slight message of hope at the end. Um, And if anyone is reading to it and relating to it, maybe too much um, to maybe take away that it it might be okay eventually. I love that. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about your new book, Really Good Actually, that comes out January 17th. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, Thank you so much. Hear from you and and learn about this book. Thank, Thank you. you so much. <laughs> Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.